Let me give a little bit of a background to uh, remind you of the divisions of the book of Zechariah. Really, it's divided into three different sections. Um, Chapter 1 through 7, they would have been in the process of building the temple. Remember, they have come back from Babylon and um, are in the process under much uh, being discouraged to rebuild the temple. So during the first part of Zechariah, the building, the temple is being built. Um, Seven through nine uh, are some more uh, visions, but more in the form of messages. And as we look at chapter uh, 10 this evening, um, 10 and 11 uh, deal with... um, Two burdens. It's actually uh, 10, 9 through 14 would be the third division of the book. We find ourselves in 10 tonight. And um, it, it deals with uh, um, the siege of Jerusalem. It, it'll deal with the siege of Alexander the Great in his conquest. And um, some very... I'll tell a couple of interesting stories and, and uh, a lot of the study tonight is about Alexander the Great and his conquest but what we learn in Zechariah is what inspired him actually to take on uh, the Medes and the Persians. It was because of a vision that he had and that will come out in our, our study uh, this evening. So we, we divide it into uh, these three sections. Remember that um, the people are discouraged. Um, Zechariah and Haggai are there to encourage them to get back to work and, and to rebuild the temple. That is accomplished about 480 to 470 BC after the building of the temple. That would be in the section that we're in tonight. So if you go to chapter 10, I'm sorry, chapter 9. So I wasn't sure if we were going to do 9 and 10 tonight, but after I saw um, all that was in chapter um, 9, I cut it off. So let's go back to chapter 9. And when it uses the terminology, the burden of the word of the Lord. It's actually the judgment. And if you remember when the Lord raised up Nebuchadnezzar, he told Jeremiah to warn the people, don't fight, capitulate, give up. And um, God is bringing, and he's using King Nebuchadnezzar as an instrument to judge Israel uh, for their lack of allowing the land to have its Sabbath day rest. And so they were there for 70 years. Now, in the same way, we know in Daniel that after Nebuchadnezzar, um, the Medes and the Persians came into power. And after that, um, we have Alexander the Great, uh, the Grecian Empire, being raised up. And he's actually being used now as he has to conquer the known world. And the cities that we're going to read in the first four verses um, is a reference to Alexander the Great and the cities that he's going to conquer. One of them in particular, uh, when we get to Tyre, we're going to get a little sidetracked, and I'm going to take you to Tyre. Um, But basically... As these world empires take control of the world, of course, they got to go back and they got to defeat the Medes and the Persians. And then they got to go and conquer the cities that would make them under his world leadership. So when it reads the burden of the word of the Lord against the land of Hadrach and Damascus, its resting place, for the eyes of men and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord. 
also against Hamath, which borders on it, and against Tyre and Sidon, uh, though they are very wise. For Tyre built herself a tower, heaped up silver like dust and gold like the mire of the streets. Behold, the Lord will cast her out. He will destroy her power in the sea, that's important, and she shall be devoured by fire. So basically, Alexander has an army of about 50,000 men. Uh, When you read in Daniel and how he's described, he's described as moving very, very quickly. Um, Usually that would have been considered a small army for world domination. So when he would go into a place, he was brutal. Uh, He destroyed completely and totally. And um, he would not only destroy the city, but then whoever wasn't killed became part of his army because he really didn't have a flank. He had to make sure the cities that he destroyed couldn't attack him from the rear. So he was always moving fast. He was always moving ahead. And what we've just read here, um, Damascus, of course, uh, is still in Syria today, territory terrorist capital of the world as far as I'm concerned. Um, I believe um, Isaiah chapter 17 verse 1 could happen literally any day. And that is that Damascus will cease from being a city and it will never be inhabited again. Um, It is the oldest continually inhabited city in the world. So it's in Assyria, Damascus, first two, and Damascus is resting place. But it gets sidetracked here talking about Tyre. And I'm going to take you to Tyre. Um, and I'm going to show you, you, as we do this, I would like you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 26. And I'm going to put on the screen two pictures of Tyre. Tyre was um, dominated by the Phoenicians. They, their military strength um, laid in their navy. And what you see here is the old city. This is the first picture I'll put up there. And what we're going to read as we get into this, I would draw your uh, attention to he and to they because Tyre had been destroyed by the Babylonians and by uh, the Medes and Persians, and they were once on, on land in the city. And then there was an island, and you can see the island there, what, what they did to protect themselves from land invasion. And because they were uh, much more capable militarily with their um, ships and vessels that they were they grew in wealth they grew in power and they moved the entire city the city they left intact but everybody moved to the island is everybody with me so far okay now now comes Alexander and he looks at the situation and um, he thought about it for a while how he could attack them knowing that he couldn't do it uh, with naval vessels because they were so greatly outnumbered by the Phoenicians that what he did is he took the stones of the building of Tyre in the old city, threw them into the sea, and made a causeway all the way out, and then he even scraped the dust from the old city of Tyre and threw it in the sea, and this is what it looks like today. That's the causeway that was made. So at one time, it was an island. What Alexander figured out, the only way we're going to be able to pull this off, when we read back in, um, let me just turn back to it real quick. He will destroy her power in the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Now, not much detail given to us there about the conquest of 
Alexander's plan, but Ezekiel gives a much more detailed account of how he accomplished this. So I'm actually going to go through the whole chapter because it's a, a big part of, um, of, of our study tonight. And remember, he's simply going to one place after the next place after the next place. After he leaves here, he's going to be making his way up to Jerusalem. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here. Okay, Ezekiel 26, verse 1. Now it came to pass in the eleventh year, on the first day of the month, that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, because Tyre has said against Jerusalem, Aha, she is broken, who was the gateway of the peoples. Now she is turned over to me. I shall be filled, and she is laid waste. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and will cause, notice this, many nations to come up against you as the sea causes the waves to come up. And they, notice it's plural, who? The many nations shall destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers and I will also scrape her dust from her and make her like the top of a rock. In other words, this uh, large city made of stone Buildings was all torn down, thrown into the Mediterranean Sea, and then when they had all that, they scraped the dust, and so that when you looked at the city where it used to be, it was just a piece of flat land. It shall be a place for spreading nets in the midst of the sea, for I have spoken, says the Lord God. It shall become plunder for the nations. Also, her daughter villages which are in the field shall be slain by the sword and then they will know that I am the Lord for thus says the Lord God behold I will bring up against Tyre from the north Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon so here was the first one Uh, king of kings with horses with chariots with horsemen an army with many peoples he will slay with the sword your daughters villages in the field He will heap up a siege bond against you, build a wall against you, and raise a defense against you. He will direct his battering rams against your walls and with his axes, and he will break down your towers. Because of the abundance of his horses, their dust will cover you. Your walls will be uh, shake as the noise of the horsemen, the wagons, and the chariots when he enters your gate as men enter a city that has been breached. With the hooves of his horses, he will trample all your streets, and he will slay your people by the sword, and your strong pillars will fall to the ground. And then they will plunder your riches and pillage um, your merchandise. They will break down your walls and destroy your pleasant homes. They will lay your stones, your timbers, and your soil in the midst of the sea." What I want to point out here is we started talking about um, they, many, and then it talks about the beginning with Nebuchadnezzar, but it changes from the word he to they. So the he that we have involved, we know that Nebuchadnezzar is not the one who did this, but it was actually Alexander the Great. I will scrape and... um, um, I will put an end to the sound, verse 13, of your music. Your harps shall be heard no more. I will make you like the top of a rock. You shall be a place for spreading nets, and you shall never be rebuilt. For I, the Lord, have spoken, says the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to Tyre, will the coastlands not shake at the sound of your fall when the wounded cry, when slaughter is made in the midst of you? Then all the princes of the sea will come down from their thrones, lay aside their robes, take off their embroidered garments. They will clothe themselves with trembling. They sit on the ground trembling every moment and be astonished at you. And they will take up a lamentation for you and say to you, how you have perished, O one inhabited by seafaring men. Again, this is what the Phoenicians were known for. Um, 
O renowned city, who was strong at sea, she and her inhabitants, who caused their terror to be on their inhabitants. And now the coastlands tremble on the day of your fall. Yes, the coastlands by the sea are troubled at your departure. Why are other cities um, fearful? Because that which they thought could never be conquered was done so by Alexander the Great. Now he continues his march on. So if we go back to Zechariah chapter 9, and we look at these first four verses again, what we have in view is Alexander taking Tyre. But now if you go inland from Tyre and south, so he's making his way southward, um, beginning with verse 5 through 7, we are introduced to the Philistines. And I will read them. Um, There are five major Philistine cities. So five says, Ashkelon shall see it and fear. Why? Because they're, they're the next in line. Gaza also shall be very sorrowful. Well, Gaza's in the news all the time. And then we read, and Ekron, another Philistine city, for he dried up her expectation. The king shall perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon shall not be inhabited, and a mixed race will settle in Ashdod. And I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. I will take away the blood from his mouth and the abomination from between his teeth. But he who remains, even he shall be our God, and she shall be like a leader in Judah. So let's just go back and review. Alexander, as I'm going to read in just a little bit, has been greatly emboldened by a vision that he had. I'm not going to tell you what the vision is right now. But it's with this vision that he had that emboldened him to take on the Medes and the Persians, particularly Darius. And that which could never be thoughtfully conquered, he figured out a way to defeat the Phoenicians. And as a result, nobody can believe it. And the next in line are these five um, Philistine cities and here I had a, um, well, it was one of the nicest streets in my entire life. I'll tell you a story because it happened to be at Ashkelon. I can't tell you the year because I've been there many times. Could have been the late 80s, could have been the early 90s. And our tour guide um, back then, I, before we had Zev, lived on a kibbutz in Ashkelon. Now back in those days, every kibbutz was known for doing something. Maybe it was manufacturing. The one that our guide grew up on and still lived lived there at this time, he wanted to take our group, take us to his kibbutz, which was a dairy kibbutz. So the the only thing they did, they they farmed and they milked. And uh, he wanted us to see where he lived. So we went, and I was at this, at this kibbutz in Ashkelon. And I walk in the front door, and this is who I run into. And I couldn't believe it. You know who that is? That's, that's Hal Lindsey. And, and I looked at him, and I said, you're Hal Lindsey. <laughs> And I had to go up and talk to him. I said, your book, The Late Great Planet Earth, changed my life. And um, this picture, I took a picture of him here because he happened to be leading a tour to Israel. And um, to be able to uh, say you ran into to Hal Lindsey and the impact that he's had on his book, of course, I've said this before, um, I think they had 43 different printings of the book. It was a top-selling book of the 70s, and it changed many, many people's lives. And as a matter of fact, he's still going at it today. You can go on his channel and um, look at the different um, speakers that are there, and Hal, 
uh, is standing there preaching from a pulpit. Um, I think in the front it says, Watcher on the Wall. And he's been doing that, and he's just as solid and sharp as he's ever been. And matter of fact, he was staying in the same hotel that we were also in Jerusalem, and I ran into him again there. So as we read these five cities, um, Alexander brought the uh, Philistine nation to an end. They never became a nation after, after Alexander destroyed these cities. Um, the land now belongs to Israel, except they gave the Gaza Strip back, which basically is a headquarters for Hezbollah right now. And um, I think it was a big mistake that they did, um, but nonetheless they did. But there are no more Philistines. And they ceased to be a nation. And um, the names of the cities are still there. I mean, Ashkelon, Ekron, Gaza, Ashkelon, and Ashdod, um, they're still there and still operate, many of them, as kibbutzes. So from verses 5 through 7, after Alexander had conquered um, Tyre, the island city, um, the, it says they were fearful. It says, Ashkelon shall see it in fear. See what? Somebody actually took out Tyre, the Phoenicians? That was unthinkable. And yet Alexander did it. All right. Now, as you move inland from there, you would be making your way up to Jerusalem. All these cities that I mentioned, these uh, Philistine cities, would have been on the coast. They call the Gaza Strip, the Gaza Strip because it's um, next to the Mediterranean Sea. And all these cities would have been. Well, a couple, not even a couple hours, um, if you go straight east, you'll be going up because you're always going up to Jerusalem. And verse eight is really dealing with Alexander now on his way to Jerusalem. They're next in line. But um, let's read it and then I'll comment on it. I will camp around my house. This would be a reference, the Lord is speaking uh, of himself, because of the army. Because of him who passes by and him who returns, no more shall an oppressor pass through them For now I have seen with my eyes. So this is a reference to Jerusalem. My house would have been the temple that had been completed. And the Lord is basically saying, I'm going to camp around it. And um, no more will our oppressor come through. Well, that's exactly what Alexander's plans are. He's going to go in. But as he's going up to Jerusalem... And um, what I'm going to quote right now is from this book right here. This is Flavius Josephus, uh, The Antiquities of the Jews. I'm going to quote from uh, book 11 and chapter 8. And this is too lengthy to read exactly what happened. But it's a very interesting story where it says, Nobody's going to take it, Uh, at least not Alexander. So what I'm going to share is just a little bit about what happened as Alexander is making his way up to Jerusalem. When Alexander understood that he was not far from the city, he went out in procession with the priests and the multitude of of the citizens. Um... The possessions were venerable in a manner of a different from all the other nations. In other words, every place he attacked, they didn't have people coming out to greet him. But that's exactly what's going on here. The high priest, and when the Phoenicians and the Chaldeans that followed him, okay, these would have been people that Alexander had conquered and made slaves, 
he would promise them plunder of all the other cities that wherever you go, you'll get a piece of the action. And so I'm ruling the world and I only got a couple more places to take out. But this is different. And it says the Phoenicians and the Chaldeans saying, what in the world are you doing? They thought they should have liberty to plunder the city and torment the high and torment the high priest to death, which the king's displeasure fairly promised them. The very reverse of it happened. In other words, he promised them plunder when they took Jerusalem, but the very opposite is going to happen. It says, for Alexander, when he saw the multitude at a distance in white garments, while the priest stood in his fine linen clothing and a high priest in his purple and scarlet clothing with a crown on his head, having a gold plate whereupon the name of God was engraved, he approached by himself. So now Alexander leaves his army and he goes on to meet the high priest who's marching out to meet him. And he adored that name and he first saluted the high priest. He greeted him. The Jews also did all together with one voice. So this, all these people in white robes, the high priest in his garments, Alexander greets them. All the people greet them back and everybody was wondering what in the world is going on. They saluted Alexander and encompassed him about whereupon the king of Syria and the rest were surprised by what Alexander had done and supposed him to be out of his mind. However, Pamenio also went up to him and asked him how it came to pass that when all the others adored him, he should adore the high priest of the Jews? In which Alexander replied, I did not adore him, but that God who had honored him and his high priesthood. And then he says this, for I saw this very person in a dream and in this very habit or his clothing when I was in Macedonia. Also, when I was considering with myself how I might obtain the dominion of Asia. How in the world do I conquer the Medes and the Persians? He's thinking, how is this going to happen? How am I going to pull this off? In the dream, he exhorted me to make no delay, but boldly to pass over the sea, for that he would conduct my army and would give me the dominion over the Persians. Wherein that having seen no other in that habit. He said, I've never seen anybody dressed like that before. And now he's looking right at this, and I'll come in big flashback. And I said, I've seen this before. This is a dream that I had when I was wondering if I should fight against uh, Darius and Medes and the Persians. And now seeing this person in it and remembering that vision and the exhortation which I had in my dream, I believe that I will bring this army under the divine conduct. In other words, he actually felt he was under a mandate from God to actually take on the Medes and the Persians, which he was successful in doing, and then he just kept on right on going. And there, and shall, therefore I conquered Darius and destroyed the power of the Persians, that all things will succeed according to what is in my own mind. I've seen it ahead of time. I had this vision. I saw this entourage of people in white robes coming out and the guy that was leading him had this gold crown on with the name of his God and as a result that emboldened Alexander to go for it. And now he's ready to take Jerusalem. He doesn't know that Jerusalem was the place that had the high priest. And so as this is sinking in, um, uh, it's also been reported, again, this is Joseph, uh, Joseph um, um, Flavius Joseph. Um, it's also recorded that he not only met Alexander the Great, but he took the book of Daniel and he said, here, this is you. Uh, there's Babylon, there's the Medo-Persians, and then you're the next one. 
and he showed him in the book of Daniel. And that so impressed him that when we read in verse 8, I will camp around my house, and no more shall an oppressor oppress it. They went there to conquer, but that didn't happen. He went there and honored the God of Israel, and he did not destroy the city, but actually protected it from any oppressor passing through. Well, Alexander would die at about 32, 33, and we know from Daniel, it's at this point that the next place that would have been in line would have been um, Egypt. So Ptolemy, one of Alexander's four generals, he went on that campaign. And this is where the world was divided in four different sections by Alexander's four generals when he died at the age of 32. But before he died, the vision that he had to do this all in the first place comes flashing back to him as he's um, entering. And um, um, we know that he did not um, conquer Jerusalem, but instead actually worshipped while he was there. All right, there's more that can be said if, if you're curious about that. Uh, this, this is a classical work that gives more information and it's, it's not, um, uh, how do I say this tactfully? It's, it's not um, divinely inspired, but he's known as the greatest biblical historian that ever lived. And if you've never read any, any of his works, it is very, very thorough. It is very, very complete. And let's move on to verse nine. Okay, so the first eight verses um, deal with Alexander's conquests. It deals with the destruction of the Philistines and um, the vision of Alexander the Great. And now we have a completely different train of thought as we get into verse nine and 10. As we teach the Bible, I like to point out that there can be gaps between verses. Um, We can have thousands of years between uh, one verse and the next. Uh, The verse that we're about to read is going to happen, uh, uh, I think some 500 years later. Verse nine, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Please turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 21. Matthew 21. It's a prophecy. It's a prophecy that was fulfilled on April 6, 32 AD, some 500 years later, later, and the other Gospels do give an account of the what we call the triumphal entry, but Matthew is the only one who directly quotes Zechariah. The other ones do not. They, they say it in their own words, but Matthew is the one that quotes it directly. So in verse one of chapter 21, now when they drew near to Jerusalem, they came to Bethage at the Mount of Olives, and Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, I want you to go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her, loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. All this was not notice, all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly, sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And this is, of course, a direct uh, scripture from Zechariah, completely different change of thought because the first eight verses are Alexander's conquests 
And then all of a sudden we have this prophecy concerning when the Messiah would come. And that, that's uh, 500 years between verse eight and verse nine. Now let's go back to um, Zechariah. And we have another gap between verse nine and verse 10. Verse nine refers to his first coming. And verse 10 refers to his second coming, the first time Jesus came as a suffering servant, lowly, humbly. The next time he comes, he's gonna come on a white stallion that says King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he is going to set up his millennial kingdom. The first time it was a cross, the next time he comes back, it's gonna be with a crown. And so between verses nine and 10, um, we have a gap of 2,000 years. Now as we teach Bible prophecy, um, it's important I take just a a moment and say that this is absolutely um, uh, the same in various other Old Testament prophecies where we have this gap. Good, Good case in point would be Daniel chapter nine verse 26, which says, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Well, that was a prophecy. He was prophesying about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. But then in verse 27, it says, and he shall make a peace treaty with many for seven years. Well, there's a gap. That hasn't happened yet. The first part of it happened in 70 A.D., Um, It's been 2,000 years, and, uh, well, the way things are going, (laughs) and especially with uh, one Arab nation after another uh, wanting to um, uh, make peace with uh, Israel, we see so many things happening, and the world is in such turmoil right now, they're actually looking for a man, throw the rapture into that equation. It's late. If you think people's wigs are wigged out right now because of the pandemic, wait till millions of people disappear. And they'll be ready to listen to anything and anybody. I don't know how to say it. You don't like to give downer Bible studies. But I think our country's over. I don't don't think it matters who wins. I think our economy is so damaged right now. They're not taking money at Lambeau Field anymore. That was on the news tonight. Only plastic. And so uh, we know that the Bible predicts a cashless society. Simple question is, do you see that on the horizon? You have to answer, well, yeah, Lambeau Field. And um, Sweden, and it's just, it's just cash is on the way out and the chip is on the way in. And the technology for that is all in place. And we, I have no hope other than the rapture of the church of things getting any better. The Bible says these are the beginning of sorrows. It says that men's hearts will be failing them for fear. The Bible talks about perilous times coming. My friends, that's what we're going into right now. And I don't see us turning it around or going around and making it all better. Those days are past. That's not very optimistic, is it? If you're born again, it is, because we have a hope. And we understand by reading the scriptures what exactly is going to happen. So as we read this in verse 10, we've gone from Jesus' first coming, verse 9, to verse 10. He said, I will cut off the chariots from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, the battle bull, shall be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations. Who? The Messiah. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. These are millennial scriptures. The only one who can fulfill it is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will rule and reign after the seven-year tribulation period when he comes back, and he will establish his kingdom. And it'll be an everlasting kingdom. So here we have, again, the gap, verse nine and 10, And the second coming 
where there'll, there'll finally be peace and speak peace to the nations. The world has not ever known peace from one end of the sea to the other and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. Clearly a reference to the second coming. And again, notice how the Lord is speaking to Zechariah, putting them right next to each other. And for many years, I'm sure many people had no idea except for the first one, um, what these meant. All right, well, let's go on to verse 11. And now he's sort of switching gears again. And he says, as for you also. Now he's going back, not giving prophecy, but um, he's referring to the godly reverent who are in Jerusalem, who are still discouraged. He's got them to rebuild the temple, but um, this is the godly remnant that there that is still suffering. So as for you also, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. And uh, I believe he's speaking to them. 12 and 13, return to the stronghold, you prisoner of hope. Even today I declare that I will restore double to you. For I have bent Judah my bow, fitted the bow with Ephraim, raised up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and made you like the sword of a mighty man. When he's talking about bending, um, bent Judah for me, I think they're looking forward to the millennium, to the time when the Lord will return, all the nations of the world will bow down to him. And um, again, um, yet future scriptures of hope. And then it says, then the Lord will be seen over them and his arrow will go forth like lightning and the Lord God will blow the trumpet and also the whirlwinds from the south. The Lord of hosts will defend them. They shall devour and subdue with sling stones. They will drink and roar as with wine. Now, 14 and 15 I would say that this is a picture of how it's going to be until Christ comes. Uh, man is not going to bring in the millennium kingdom to the earth, but um, there, will, there will be this seven-year period of time, and that's what I think we have in view here. And um, verse 16 tells us, they shall be filled with blood like basins, like the corners of the altar. Then verse 16 The Lord their God will save them in that day as the flocks of his people. All right, I will just stop there. And when we get to chapter 12, and we find that um, it's in the very middle of the tribulation period, Satan will have been cast down to the earth at this time. And um, they will... um, eventually, from Petra, call out on the name of the Lord. The Lord will save them in that day. In what day? Remember the last words he said to the nation of Israel. You will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so when they're broken, I see the tribulation um, as it's called the time of Jacob's trouble. They're being put through the fire. They're being refined. And the Antichrist will go and try to destroy them. But in their brokenness, they call out on the name of the Lord and the Lord returns. That's what brings back the second coming. And they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he will then destroy um, their enemies And then it goes on, that's the battle. The Lord will save them as the flocks from the people. And then there's this interesting verse. For they shall be like the jewels of a crown, lifted up like a banner from his hand. For how great is their goodness and how great is their beauty. Now this is from the Lord's perspective as he's looking at his people 
A grain shall make the young man thrive and new wine the young women. In other words, joy again. Turn with me, and it's the next one over, and we'll begin to wind this up. Go to the book of Malachi. You're in Zechariah. The last book of the Old Testament is Malachi. And I'll draw your attention to verse 16. I want you to think about this the next time you're fellowshipping with somebody and you're talking about Jesus or you're witnessing. Do you know that it's all being recorded? Verse 16, it says, And those who feared the Lord spoke one to another, and the Lord listened and heard them, and so a book of remembrances was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. So the smallest detail, you know, if you can count the hairs on your head, and um, uh, with the technology that we have today, everything's being monitored, and we're on uh, the fast track to having um, um, everybody um, will be known where you are, where you go, what you do, that we as people have that technology, how much more the creator of the universe. So he's got it all written down in his book of remembrances. But that's not why I turned here. I turned here because of verse 17. And they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make them my jewels. So he's referring to when he comes back, his people as precious jewels in Zechariah, he calls them his beautiful jewels. You're the bride of Christ. And we have his righteousness. And as far as he's concerned, you're beautiful. And uh, on that day, I will make them my jewels when he comes back. And on Sunday, we talked about the promises that he made to the church, seven of them. And it's it's the sweet part about the way the Lord looks at you. Um, my thoughts towards you, he says, are for good, not for evil. Even when you're going through difficult times, he's promised to work it out somehow for the good. Uh, in some ways, the shaking that we're going through worldwide right now is causing some people to slow down and actually think, what in the world is going on here? And maybe those crazy Christians might be right after all because they talk a lot and have talked a lot about this. And so, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. The Bible says, don't you know that you're going to judge angels? You're gonna make dis- discerning Judgments, oh, you're not supposed to judge people. That's Matthew 7. It means I'm not supposed to judge the motive of why you do what you do. Because I don't know. Because I can't see your heart. Only the Lord can. But it says a spiritual man judges all things. Well, what does that mean? Well, we have this plumb line. It's right here. And we use this for discernment. We use this to make a distinction between what is right, what is wrong and what is righteous and what isn't. And so one of our responsibilities and one of the promises to the churches is you will rule and reign with him during the millennial reign. What we don't have a lot of information on is the last two chapters in the book of Revelation where it talks about now there's gonna be a new heaven and a new earth. And it doesn't really give us very much detail except the dimensions of the New Jerusalem, what it looks like, so on and so forth. A lot of information about the Great Tribulation and what happens during that period of time. As we close this up tonight, the final point that I'd like to make is as we study the book of Revelation, I made the statement, you can't understand the book of Revelation unless you understand the book of Daniel. I don't think I've asked for an amen all night, have I? I'm asking for one now. Same with Zechariah. So as we look here, we have prophecy. We have the prophecy of Jesus' first coming. And we have prophecies of his second coming. This is something 
um, Orthodox Jews just cannot figure out. They did not, could not comprehend. They could comprehend verse 10 when the Messiah comes and he's going to reign and rule. But what about the suffering part where he goes to the cross lowly, humbly? They couldn't, they, they couldn't rationalize or reconcile the two differences. They only focused on, they promised David a kingdom. They never saw him as in view of Isaiah 53, where it says, and it pleased the Lord to bruise him and to put him to an open shame. And uh, he was despised and he was rejected. He wasn't outwardly good looking. Matter of fact, it says in Isaiah 53, that if you looked at him, he wouldn't be one that you would desire. He was an average-looking Jewish man. And um, they, have, they have to deal with Isaiah 53. They have to deal with Daniel chapter 9. But they either allegorize it or just explain it away in ways um, that if they took it in context and just read it for what it said... They, had, they would have to come up with the conclusion that Jesus Christ is the Jewish Messiah. And uh, he came twice. Once for a cross, the second time for a crown. Amen? Let's stand and we'll close with that. Lord, we thank you that we can look at a book like Zechariah, this Old Testament book, and see um, um, the fulfillment, the first part of it being fulfilled 2,000 years ago, and now looking forward to that time when you will take uh, your church home and then all hell will break loose as we see the beginnings of that right now. We're just grateful, Lord, that we can have fellowship with one another, that we can freely worship you, that we have the hope of heaven that we know that you have a plan, that you have not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. And Lord, this does give us peace. It does give us sound heart and a sound mind and a sound spirit. And it only comes because we know what your word has to say about these issues. So we thank you, Lord, for your word tonight. And Lord, as we go, we just pray that you go before us the rest of this week. I pray for those... um, that are going through difficult times and the anxiety and the stress level for some and many at our all-time high. I pray, Lord, that they would find their hope um, that, is, that is in you. And so, Lord, we just give you the rest of this evening. Go before the rest of this week. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.